0: Good morning, church. Are you familiar with the movie A Knight's Tale? It's a family favorite, A Knight's Tale. Came back, came out back in 2001, and it stars Heath Ledger, so it's, it's not, a, not a recent film. But I can't condone everything in it, but it's hilarious. It's a family favorite. We love it. Basically, it's this. Uh, It takes place in the Middle Ages in Britain, and a peasant pretends to be a knight. And he he pretends to be a knight in order to enter into tournaments so he can joust and fight and things like that. And uh, he starts to win them, and hilarity ensues. And along the way, the knight meets up with a famous writer named Geoffrey Chaucer. Anybody familiar with Chaucer? He's the famous author of the Canterbury Tales. So before each tournament, Chaucer goes out into the ring, and instead of acting like a normal herald, telling about the the knight's uh, accolades and his titles and being very proper and stuff, he goes out and he acts like a WWE announcer. And he announces his knight, and he wins over the crowd before the joust even happens, and the crowd is rooting for, for this guy, Heath Ledger's character, because of Chaucer. It's a, it's a big deal. The Herald is a big deal. It's one of the best parts of the movie. In fact, it's my favorite part of, of the movie, and Chaucer's my personal favorite character. He's hilarious. The way uh, that he would do it is totally unexpected. And like I said, he would just win people over and they would be on this underdog's side. We don't really have those kind of people anymore in our culture. I mean, you can think of analogies like, I don't know, propagandist people or individuals who work at the White House to give information about the king or something like that. But for centuries, heralds were really important. Heralds played a big role in the dissemination of information from the throne to the people. So if a king was going to make a a visit to a specific place, they'd send a herald well in advance to that place so that the region could make themselves ready, right? They'd clean up their town. They would repair their roads. Local leaders would get prepared for feasts and banquets and so, so on and so forth. And all of it was done because a herald was sent. Today, we're introduced to the most important herald In the scriptures. So let's stand as you're able and read Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Again, that's Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is, he was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the surrounding region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But... When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire." I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Let's pray as you're seated. thank you, Lord, today for your word. We pray now that as we receive it, you would open our hearts to it, mold and shape our lives by it, conform our minds to you, Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. John the Baptist, maybe the most obvious nickname in the history of the world, but maybe he should be called John the Herald or John the Prophet. Or even better, John the Second Elijah. But there were, some, there were some who had the idea that maybe John was the Messiah. Priests and Levites asked John that question in John chapter 1, the Gospel of John. So Matthew wants to show us who John really is. He wants to tell us what he was all about, what his message was, and whether or not he was actually the Messiah. So, first, John's identity. The first few verses here deal with John's appearance and his identity. I'm going to read them again. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. In Matthew's gospel, John just kind of shows up out of nowhere. He just kind of appears. And that's why it's really nice we have four accounts of the life of Christ, and each one of them mentions John. And Luke, in particular, tells us all about John's background. John is the son of a priest named Zechariah, and his mother, Elizabeth, is a relative to Jesus' mother, Mary. And John's birth was also due to a miracle like Jesus. And it's more similar, actually, to Abraham and Sarah's firstborn son, Isaac, back in Genesis. So he doesn't come out of nowhere. He doesn't just appear. But that's kind of the sense Matthew wants us to have. That's the mystery he's presenting us with. This mysterious, unusual figure coming out of the wilderness. Some time has passed, chronologically, from when we discussed Joseph, Mary, and Jesus returning to Nazareth. Some time has passed. They're adults now. And at the time of this story, Jesus is old enough to be baptized. That's what we'll look at next week. Matthew uses the loose term, in those days, to skip ahead in time. And he tells us that John is preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And that's a significant note. He's preaching in the wilderness. And for us, the wilderness symbolizes something unknown, untamed, right? It's something, it's not somewhere we would go unless we're really adventurous, we're really into that. It's wild. It's the wilderness. But in ancient Israel, it meant something different the wilderness stood for something much more positive. Remember that Israelites were sent into the wilderness for 40 years. And it was in the wilderness that their nation was put into a crucible and formed into what God wanted them to be when they entered the promised land. It was where they were given the law and clear direction from the Lord. So, for ancient Israel, the wilderness stood for new beginnings, newness, restoration. There was a whole community of Jewish believers who intentionally lived out in the wilderness in a place called Qumran at this time. These Jews were known as the Essenes. And they were a religious group that were distinct from the Pharisees and Sadducees. That's, those are the two groups that we typically hear about, the Pharisees and Sadducees. The scribes and the lawyers and all those guys belonged to one of those groups. But there was a third, the Essenes, and they lived away, far away. It's like... Uh, Roman Catholic monasticism, monks. They lived out by themselves and they chose to do it. So they lived in hills and in caves and small monastic communities and they dedicated themselves to ritual cleanness according to the law and the study of scriptures. So maybe you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. We base a lot of our Old Testament off of that finding found last century. That was from this community in Qumran. They they wrote down the scriptures, they studied them Most significantly, the Essenes believed that God's judgment on the people of Israel was coming soon. It was coming any day. That's why they had to purify themselves and know the law. So here comes John, out of the wilderness, proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So it's reasonable to think that John was maybe a part of this community of Qumran, but he felt called from, from the Lord to proclaim the message of repentance to the nation of Israel. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. These are the very words that Jesus will use when he starts his ministry in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 4 after his temptation. John's message is a warning As we'll see later in the text, John wants the people to cleanse themselves from sin because he knows judgment is coming soon. And following his usual formula, at the start of the gospel, Matthew links John with Old Testament prophecy. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. He's quoting straight from Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 3. But I think it's worth quoting from this chapter at length, starting in verse 9. Listen to this. O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. In this scripture, God comes to his people as a shepherd, a mighty shepherd. Of course, this is Jesus. That's Jesus. He is the good shepherd who cares for his sheep and gently leads them. But John is also pictured in Isaiah chapter 40. He is the one uh, announcing to and announcing with Jerusalem that their mighty God comes as a good shepherd to gather his people to himself. He is the herald, letting us know that the king and his kingdom is at hand. So John, his identity is primarily a voice, a herald. And another name for the voice of God in the Old Testament is prophet. That's exactly what John was. He's the last of the Old Covenant prophets. And it's his job to directly herald the coming of the king. And what an amazing job he had. What a blessing to be John the Baptist, the last prophet, herald of the king. It's one of the many reasons Matthew mentions what John wears and how he dresses, and what he eats. I've always found it odd that Matthew mentions exactly that. Why, who cares what John wears? Why do, why do we need to know about his diet? But it makes a lot of sense if what John is wearing is actually a uniform. You would mention that. That's exactly what's happening here. John wears a cloak of fur and a belt of leather. These are the things that Elijah wears in 2 Kings 1.8. And in Zechariah chapter 13, we learn that a rough cloak of fur was the traditional garment of prophets. John's wearing this stuff on purpose to show that he's sent from God. And his diet is consistent with the community of Qumran and the Nazarite vow. So we talked about Jesus being a Nazarene last week. And I said, it's not likely that Jesus was a Nazarene in the sense that he took the Nazarite vow. But John probably is. He probably is a Nazarite. Locusts were the only insect that was allowed to be eaten according to the law. You could dry them out and crush them up and make them into cakes. Delicious. And of course, the mention of wild honey. The promised land is the land flowing with milk and Milk and honey, right? So John is representing all of the people of Israel here. He is announcing to them, just like in Isaiah chapter 40, where the herald is associated with Jerusalem. So altogether, Matthew presents us with an austere, serious man who looks like a prophet, sounds like a prophet, and eats like a prophet. The very last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, ends like this, behold... I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. These are the last verses of our Old Testament order. The people of Israel would have been looking for the second Elijah. They would have known that God was going to send him. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, For all the prophets and law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So, who's John? He is a herald. He is a prophet. And he is the second Elijah. He is the voice crying out in the wilderness, a herald for the coming king. That's who John is. That's his identity. Second, John's mission. What was the second Elijah supposed to do? According to Malachi, it was to turn the hearts of the people away from destruction. And that's exactly what we find John doing. Verse 5, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. By Matthew's description here, we can use our imagination. And we can picture large crowds coming out to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. And we can see that these baptisms were accompanied by and preceded by confession of sin. Okay, so I think now is a pretty good time to talk about baptism and where it came from. Ritual washings were a part of Judaism for centuries since the giving of the law. There's various diseases or bodily issues that you would have to wash your body for in order to rejoin or re-enter proper temple worship. If you became unclean in some way through bodily illness or disease or touching a dead body or many of the other ways you could become unclean, you had to wash yourself and re-enter that way. You had to be made clean again. Okay, so back to the Essenes, this group in Qumran out in the wilderness. The Essenes believed in daily washing because anything could make you unclean, and they believed in the purification by water and dunking for the same reasons. So we see an interesting example in the Old Testament of this kind of stuff in the person of Naaman, a commander of in Syria who is commanded by Elisha to wash himself Himself seven times. Where? Anybody remember? The Jordan River. Okay, so the Jordan River comes up in the Old Testament for washing and cleanliness. For Gentiles, that's pretty significant. So ritual and religious purification was common in the people of Israel. But this right here seems like something new. This seems different than all of that. It's not ritual, ritual washing of the body for some physical uncleanness, or from, for some miraculous healing. It's ritual washing for spiritual uncleanness. These people are coming out from all over Judea to confess their sins and then be baptized. This is, this is brand new. John's taken a well-known symbol, ritual cleaning, which stood for the re entrance into temple worship and right relationship with the community, and he's applied it to spiritual matters. When these people are being baptized, they're saying, I am spiritually clean. I belong to a new community of those who are spiritually clean. That's what baptism does. This is exactly what we do in the church. We practice water baptism the same way John did. When we come to be baptized, we're proclaiming that we have been spiritually cleaned, that our sin has been removed by Jesus Christ, and that we belong to this community. But you'll notice here that baptism is a symbol that takes place after those spiritual truths are already real. It happens after the fact. Let's keep reading and see how that's the case. Verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Matthew introduces us to a new set of characters. Some that will pop up over and over again in this gospel. Maybe you are well acquainted with the Pharisees and Sadducees. But since this is the first time Matthew mentions them in the gospel... I'm going to talk about them. And so that we can all be on the same page. It's easy to remember what makes these groups different if you remember it like this. The Sadducees were politically liberal and religiously conservative. And the Pharisees were politically conservative and religiously liberal. I'm gonna say that again in case you're a note taker. The Sadducees were politically liberal and religiously conservative, and the Pharisees were politically conservative and religiously liberal. Let me explain. The Sadducees were politically liberal in that they were not really concerned with the reestablishment of Israel as a nation. They were okay living alongside of Rome, with Rome having conquered them, setting up a state for them. Sadducees were fine with that. So this meant that many more sadducees were involved with local government than their counterparts. They were more of a political party than the Pharisees. But they were religiously conservative, meaning they rejected any doctrines derived from books other than the Torah, and they felt that those were the only books that God directly handed to Israel in order to follow the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. That's why we have the common phrase that the Sadducees were sad, you see. Because they rejected doctrines like the resurrection and angels. So that's the, the Sadducees. Politically liberal, okay with Rome, religiously conservative, based all their religion on the Torah. Now, the Pharisees are exactly the opposite. They were politically conservative in that they believed Rome was bad and that Israel needed to reestablish itself as an independent nation state. Now, that's a really important thing to remember. The Pharisees descended from a political dynasty known as the Hasmoneans. And if you're familiar with Hanukkah, then you may be familiar with the Maccabees who revolted against the Seleucid king. And they established a kingdom in Israel for a very short time before they're completely squashed by Rome. And the Pharisees changed at that time when they were squashed from a revolutionary political party to a a party more concerned with spiritual matters. But they never lost that political bent and desire to reestablish Israel as a nation. So, we talk about often how the disciples in the Gospels seem to be expecting Jesus to set up a kingdom, an earthly kingdom, right? Here's the thing, something we don't really realize. Almost all of the disciples in Jesus himself probably emerge from the party of the Pharisees, this tradition, this education system, because that's what it was. Schools and and teachers discipled individual people and brought them up in these ways. They were expecting Israel to be reestablished as a nation state. That's why they're constantly concerned about this. The Pharisees feature most prominently in the Gospels. We can hear about them all the time because that's who the people were looking at, the disciples and Jesus, are around more frequently. That's who they belong to. When the Sadducees show up, it's weird. They show up out of nowhere. So they're politically conservative, but they're religiously liberal. They extend, they extended what was considered scripture in binding, even beyond our Old Testament, to include a set of rules that made, made it so that the Torah would never be broken, ideally. That you couldn't break the law. In other words, they set up Maybe you've heard this before. The Pharisees set up a hedge around the law of other little laws to protect the big law. Together, these religious political parties made up the Sanhedrin or the Jewish Supreme Court. And neither group cleanly lines up with what we would consider right wing or left wing today. Maybe you see some of yourself in these political parties. We, we think of Pharisees primarily... They're synonymous with the word hypocrite. And that's because of this hedge. And Pharisees we associate primarily with unbelievers or skeptics or maybe even Jewish atheists or something like that because they didn't believe in supernatural beliefs. So there's a little bit of the world in each of these parties, but there's a little bit of the good in each of these parties. And as we come up against these groups in the gospel going forward, we'll talk about them more. Typically, Neither of these groups had anything to do with each other, ever. They didn't associate. They thought the other group was 100% wrong. So that's why it's so weird and so fascinating to see a group made up of Pharisees and Sadducees going out to the Jordan River together to check out John's baptism. They don't seem to be wanting to participate in the baptism, but instead they're snooping They want to see what it's all about. These two groups are the jealous types. They were interested in anyone who is drawing attention away from their spiritual leading. And as we know, their jealousy and skepticism leads to the death of Jesus. But John knows that they're there for, uh, for other reasons than repentance. And so he says to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Woof. He just calls them snakes. And then he implies they deserve God's wrath. Okay. Maybe he has in mind Psalm 140, which says, Deliver me, O O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their heart and stir up wars continually. They make their tongue sharp as a serpent's and under their lips is the venom of asps. A brood of vipers. Jesus will use this insult too to talk about them. Evil men who plan things. These guys are constantly leading people away from the Lord through their teaching and through their words. And you'd think that John's initial response would be positive. That he'd be excited to see a group of religious leaders coming out to the baptism Maybe he'd encourage them to participate. But John's upset that they're there. John seems mad that that they would presume to come out and snoop. He knows what they're all about. You see, baptism is a symbol of repentance. Something that has already occurred. And these guys believe they don't have anything to repent about. That's why John urges them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance. Like I said earlier, baptism is a physical symbol. It's a physical symbol, something we participate in visually to represent something that has taken place invisibly inside a spiritual reality. That's baptism. It's something every Christian is called to do. Every Christian is called to be baptized. But before they're baptized, every Christian is called to repentance. We're called to turn away from our sin and to live righteous lives. We're supposed to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But I would suggest that it's just as common today to find so-called believers who are more like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who have no use for repentance. I think that's pretty common. How often do we excuse sin in ourselves? How often do we ignore sin in our hearts? How often do we justify our actions? How often do we make ourselves feel better because of the religious things we do? True repentance leaves sin behind. Those who've experienced the saving grace of God should be regular, practitioners of repentance. Let me say that again. Those who have experienced the grace of God should be regular practitioners of repentance. We should get good at it. We should get good at repenting. It should be a part of our prayer life. It should be a part of our church life because we're always being confronted with different ways that we have sinned. And different ways we've failed to live up to God's standard. As you press on into your life with Jesus Christ, you should be made more aware of the depth of your sin. As you repent of one thing, you're made aware of another. That's how deep sin is in us. And so we should get really good at repentance. Because the other option is to do what the Pharisees and the Sadducees do. When you have a little bit of taste of grace. When you have a little taste of the truth and you're confronted with sin, you can make the choice to say, yes, that's true, that is in me and I repent. Or you can ignore it, excuse it, or justify it. Examine your heart this morning. Are you quick to excuse sin or ignore your sin or justify your sin? Rather than repent of your sin. And we all fail in this way. What sin in particular comes to mind for you? My exhortation to you is the same as John's here. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John's whole mission is to proclaim this message of repentance to the people of Israel. So that they're ready for their king. John understood that the time was short. Verse 9, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So lest the Pharisees and Sadducees think they're safe from judgment because they're sons of Abraham, John tells them that even their ethnicity Can't save them. If God wanted to, he could make rocks. The children of Abraham. That's how powerful God is. And that's how much being a child of Abraham doesn't matter. Their spiritual heritage couldn't save them. And it's the same with us. So, I'd like to speak to all the young people in the room especially any teenagers here, listen very close. Your parents' faith will not save you from your sin. It's good that mom and dad bring you to church or college students, that mom and dad have encouraged you to find a nice church. But that won't save you either. None of us here are saved by our heritage by mom and dad, by grandma and grandpa. None of us are saved by our church attendance or our spiritual disciplines or our Bible knowledge or other good works. We are only saved by God's grace through faith. And so, John's exhortation stands for you as well. Bear fruit... In keeping with repentance. Young people. What's keeping you from being baptized? What's keeping you from turning away from your sin today? John called the people to repent and bear fruit. The first fruit that he has in mind is baptism. So I'm calling you to be baptized and to repent first. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't be a Pharisee or a Sadducee who relies upon their spiritual heritage to get by. Because even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Even now. And it was clear that that meant judgment was close. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when Jesus returns, he will return to judge. And every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. That's a warning for all of us, not just the young people. Don't be a pretender. The time is now to repent of sin and live to Christ. That's John's ultimate message. That's his mission. John's getting the people ready for Jesus, he's making the field ready for sowing. He's getting them ready for their king. Third, John's superior. He says in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandal I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John turns his attention back to the to the people gathered at the Jordan River, and he tells them of one who's coming who will bring a different type of baptism, a baptism of the Holy Spirit and a baptism of fire. John says that the one who's coming is mightier than him. Another way to translate that is stronger. He's stronger or greater. John likens himself to the lowliest possible servant or slave who is unworthy even to carry dirty sandals of their master. That's him in comparison to the one who is coming. So his point is he's not even in the same league as the one who is coming. He's not just a little bit mightier. He is the mightiest. They think John is great, the people around him question may even be, is this one the Messiah? But they have no idea, right? The one who's mightier, the one who is stronger, of course, is Jesus. Jesus is the stronger one who is coming. Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. There's a couple ways to understand that statement, baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. It could be that the Holy Spirit and fire are in reference to the same thing. After all, when the Spirit descends upon the church, in Acts chapter 2, he does so in the form of tongues of flame resting on the heads of the apostles and those gathered. But I think this is in reference to two different things. The Holy Spirit, baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is given to all believers in Christ, and a reference to judgment, fire. Fire. Right now we're in the time to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Praise God. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is simply the moment the Spirit regenerates a person. When he makes the one who was once dead alive again. This is the work of the Spirit in every believer at the time of regeneration. And Some understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit to be referring to an extra measure of the Spirit down the road but i don't believe that's what is happening here with the baptism of the holy spirit i think the baptism of the holy spirit is salvation when god indwells each believer with the person of the holy spirit so let me ask you did you know if you are a christian you're indwelt by god himself if you believe in jesus christ if you believe the gospel you've been given the gift of the holy spirit not a force not magic, a person. Think about that for a little bit. We're in that time right now. If you've not received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, if you've not received salvation by grace through faith, it's available. It's here and it's offered to you. It's extended. You can have the gift of the Holy Spirit. But soon, Jesus will bring a baptism of fire when he judges all the world Jesus is pictured as the one with a winnowing fork in his hand. He's separating the wheat from the chaff in verse 12. He's clearing the the threshing floor. John gives us this agricultural picture of a man cleaning out his barn at at harvest, where where wheat is being readied for the mill. It's separated from the husk, then it's sorted into the barn. The wheat is brought there, and then the chaff, the chaff is burned up. The threshing floor is the world. The gospel has gone out into the world. It has done so for 2,000 years. And soon the separation will occur. The wheat are those who believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and have borne fruit in keeping with repentance. And the chaff are those who continue in their unbelief. Jesus is not only the Savior of the world. He's not only even the king of the world. Jesus will judge the world. And time is running out. Time is running out to hear and believe the gospel. Jesus will return soon and judgment is coming. So where will you be sorted? That's John's question, really. It's a thought-provoking comment to make everybody around him think about whether they are wheat or chaff. It's a good thing for us to think about too. Where will you be sorted? There's only two options. So examine. Examine your heart against the word right now. Have you borne fruit in keeping with repentance? Or do you find that you're more like a Pharisee and Sadducee? Where will you be sorted? This is John's call to his people and it's my call to you. He wants them to repent and ready themselves for the king. John is the great herald of Jesus Christ who called the people to repentance and his message is still relevant today. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now the kingdom of heaven we've talked about before is already here. And in the same way, it is not yet to come. It is here in the church. God is reigning on earth through us. The kingdom of heaven is at hand immediately right here. And you can join it. You can participate. You can be a part of this new community God has created. But soon it will come. And Jesus will reign as a king on earth. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's no time to dilly-dally. There there's no time to be wishy-washy. You are not guaranteed anything in the future. Hopefully Jesus comes right after I finish. And then he'll judge. Are you prepared for that? Let's pray. Lord, it's only through your spirit. It's only through your grace that we can bear fruit in keeping with repentance like you have called us to do. So Lord, right now, I pray for those here who have not borne fruit in keeping with repentance, that you would give them your spirit and the ability to do that, that they would look at their sin, that they would hate their sin and turn away from you from their sin and to you. That they wouldn't return to their sin or desire it more, but they'd understand that it's, it's the thing that separates them from you. Spirit, we thank you. Holy Spirit, we, we welcome you and we pray that you would encourage us this morning, especially those of us who believe your gospel. Not that we would feel superior or that this doesn't apply to us, but that way we would press in even further into you. That way we would make repentance a a daily occurrence and habit and desire. That we wouldn't be afraid of our sin when it comes up, but we would be quick to repent of it. That we wouldn't ignore it or justify it, but that we would place it on the cross, Jesus, where you died. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.